Our scripture reading today is going to be taken from one, two, three, four, five passages of scripture that we're going to have you turn to in the book of Romans. If you'd open your Bibles there, please. We're going to just basically give you an overview of what themes, theological themes, that are going to be developed in this book of Romans that we'll see developed. We'll start examining the text next week. The first text I'm going to have you turn to is Romans 3.23, because this is a big theme that Paul will develop through the first three chapters of the book of Romans. He climaxes it by saying in verse 23 of Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's theme number one, all people are sinners, and all people have fallen short of the glory of God. Theme number two is in Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what we realize there is that Paul's going to develop another theme. You cannot be right with God by trying to keep the law, so don't trust in the law. Don't try to keep the law because that isn't going to make you right with God. Theme number three is seen in Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So Paul says the way to a relationship with God is not by your works. Don't trust in your works, because that won't make you right with God either. It is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which brings us to the fourth theme, which is seen in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. And in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, we read, Therefore... Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that uh, theme develops the concept, there's only one way into a relationship with God, and that is faith alone in Christ alone gives us a status before God. And the final text that I'd have you turn to today is Romans 11.6. Romans 11.6, which basically says, but if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. So this entire book of Romans is designed to teach us that we are saved by the grace of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It's not by keeping the Old Testament law. It's not by our human works. It's by grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. And that gives you a basic breakdown of the themes that will be developed in the book of Romans. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of those key verses that are in this book as we expound it, and the exposition later this morning. Let's pray. My Father, we bow in thy presence today to thank you for this book of Romans. We thank you for the gospel of God, thy gospel. We thank you for the theology that you've revealed in this book. In fact, we stand in awe of it. We stand in awe of your grace We stand amazed at the depth of your wisdom that could even devise a plan of salvation that is of this magnitude. And on this Sunday, as we celebrate communion, we certainly see that this entire grace gospel centers on one person, your precious son, Jesus Christ. And oh, how we thank you for him. We thank you that you used your spirit to track us down so that we would realize our need to believe totally and only in him. We thank you that you revealed that we're not saved by our attempts to keep the Old Testament law. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by religion. We're saved by Jesus Christ alone, and it's in him we fully trust. And God, this is the book that teaches us that very theme. Thank you for that. And also later in this book, you also teach us that government is ordained of you and has a responsibility. The responsibility, as you bring out in the 13th chapter of this book, is 
that government is to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. But we have a deep concern for what is happening in government, Lord, as to whether or not they're following through on that. So we would ask that you would please use your sovereign power and might to turn the minds of those that are in political offices that you've ordained, that they would use those offices to make right decisions. Decisions concerning your son versus religion. Decisions concerning life versus death. Decisions even concerning our own economy. Lord, when we think through things, we realize that you're the sovereign God who permitted energy sources to be discovered. And in this country, you were so gracious and merciful to us to allow such things as oil and coal and nuclear power to be discovered. And we have leadership that opposes these things today, Lord, and it's hurting your people. So we would ask that you would use your sovereign power to turn things around like you do rivers of water and move in this time, Lord. These are troubled times and we need your intervention. And I pray that as this time of ours continues to develop, you would help us to keep our own focus on your word and your will and your blessings. Lord, it's so easy to become depressing people, but our goal is to be joyful people, confident people, stable people. So we pray that you would lead us and use us and protect us and develop us. In Jesus' name, amen. When we begin a new book study, we typically begin by asking, why study the book? And usually we give several reasons why we're going to study the book. And the first reason we always give to that is because this book is an inspired book of God. To Romans, we're only going to give one reason for studying the book. Romans is an inspired book of God and is the most important book of God when it comes to understanding the gospel in all of the Bible. The book of Romans unlocks the doctrine of the gospel. Now, the manuscripts of the book of Romans were being circulated by the middle of the second century, in fact, before that. Every listing of inspired books contains Romans. Every church council meeting contained Romans. There were 5,800 Greek manuscripts that are in existence today. That contains Romans. Clement of Rome was teaching from the book of Romans before the end of the first century, AD 88 to AD 99. I mean, he cited Romans continually, as did Polycarp in AD 110 and Irenaeus in AD 130. Back in 2012, there was some archaeologists who were digging in a garbage dump in Egypt. And they came across pieces of manuscripts And in those fragments of manuscripts, they actually found Romans chapters 9 and 10. So it's been a well-preserved, well-documented, inspired book about God. This book has just been written and preserved ever since Paul wrote it. Now, one of the first letters that Paul ever wrote was the letter to the Galatians. He wrote that letter in about AD 48 to a group of fickle churches. And they were getting all fuzzy and confused about the gospel of the grace of God. And so when he wrote that book of Galatians, he had to straighten out some of their doctrinal quirks. I mean, he told them that the gospel of God was revealed to Paul by Jesus Christ himself. He had to defend that. He said, I got this gospel directly from Jesus Christ. I didn't sit around one day and dream up the doctrines. The gospel of God was a message centered on one person, Jesus Christ. He drove that point home to the Galatians. He said that the gospel of God is a message of faith alone in Christ alone. He drove that message home. And then he said this gospel of God was a message that he had the responsibility to take to the Gentile nations. 
Now, he said all of that to those churches of Galatia in about A.D. 48. Then, about 10 years later, we're now about A.D. 58. Paul decided to carefully lay out the full theological dimensions of the gospel of God. He was led by the Spirit of God to pen Romans. And the Pauline gospel of God, which he received directly from Jesus Christ, he fully writes, develops, explains, and applies in this book of Romans. And literally, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, literally, no other book in the Bible has impacted the Gentile world like the book of Romans. It's impossible to actually over-exaggerate that point. That's not just hyperbole coming from a minister who's trying to kill time with verbiage. This book has had a major impact on the world. Augustine, for example, a libertine professor of rhetoric who identified himself as being a slave to lust. He was saved by reading two verses from the book of Romans. It transformed his life. It changed him. Here's his own account of what happened. Eagerly, then I returned to the place where Alupius, that was his friend, was sitting. For there I had laid the volume of the apostle. When I had risen, I seized open and in silence, read that second on which my eyes first fell, not in rioting or drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. No further would I read, nor needed I, for instantly, at the end of this sentence, by a light, as it were, of serenity infused into my heart, all the darkness of doubt vanished. Vanished away. Augustine was saved by reading two verses from the book of Romans. Several years later, when Pelagius, who had developed a real man-centered theology, was opposing the teachings of the sovereign grace of God that was taught by Augustine, Augustine refuted him by giving a series of lectures on the book of Romans. And even though Augustine never wrote a full commentary in the book of Romans. His doctrine and theology stemmed from the book. As Tybus Schreiter said, he has probably exerted more influence on the church worldwide than any other theologian in the history of the church. So this book of Romans was impacting since the early days. It was Romans that God used to save and transform Martin Luther. Around the year 80, 1515, Luther was a Roman Catholic he was given an assignment to teach a series of lectures on the book of Romans at the University of Wittenberg. And as Luther carefully studied Romans, he saw what it said about the sin and about law and about grace and about the righteousness of God and faith. He basically saw a lot of those things we looked at in our scripture reading this morning. And when he read Romans 1, 16 to 17 that says the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, it dawned on him that men are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any human effort or works. And God used that to save him. And as Luther continued to study Romans, it so changed his life. Then on October 31, 1517, he marched up to the church door of Wittenberg and nailed 95 theses to the door of the church. Luther's grasp of Romans not only shook up the Catholic Church, it started the Reformation that would influence and shake up the whole world. I was flying from a book-selling call that I had to make in New York back to Grand Rapids in those years, and I sat next to a Catholic priest. 
And it just so happened that Kriegel published both Luther's Galatians and Romans. And I had copies of them in my briefcase. So I said to this Catholic priest, look, I've been recently reading Luther on justification. Can you explain why he said that justification is by faith alone apart from any works? He said, we don't like Luther. (laughs) I said, I get that, but can you explain that? They still don't like him. They still can't explain it. Romans was a book of the Bible that God used to save John Calvin. John Calvin said that it was the study of the book of Romans that led to what he called his sudden conversion. He said most people today are asleep to their own sins, and most people today flatter themselves with their false notions of religious righteousness, and Paul comes along and says, you're all guilty. Martin Luther wrote a commentary on the book of Romans in AD 1552, and Kriegel republished it, and we sold that book on Romans. I don't know if they still have it, but that's what we did when I was there. And Luther began his commentary on Romans with a preface. And one night in AD 1738, a group of believers decided to get together on Aldersgate Street in London, England to study the Bible, and they decided what they were going to do is go through the book of Romans. They were going to use Martin Luther's commentary on Romans as their guide, and that particular night, they read the preface to Romans that Luther wrote, and in that study was a guy named John Wesley. And as the preface was being read which Wesley said was at 8.45 p.m., quarter to 9 p.m. He documented the time. At 8.45 p.m., it defined some of the key words of Romans and gave capsule summary breakdown of each chapter. Wesley said, it strangely warmed my heart, and that night, John Wesley was saved by the book of Romans. Donald Gray Barnhouse began his famous pastorate in the 10th Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia in 1927. Barnhouse said he decided, I was going to just start at verse 1 of Romans and preach straight through the book. He said, for the next three and a half years, I went straight through the book of Romans. I never preached from any other book. He said, the church filled up. People were transformed. Barnhouse said, I was transformed. It was a careful study of one book that did that. It was the book of Romans. And the book of Romans has really impacted my life. When my brother was in Dallas Seminary, we took a trip to Dallas to visit with him. And one of the places that we went to church one Sunday was Believer's Chapel in Dallas, Texas. And that particular Sunday in the pulpit was Dr. S. Lewis Johnson. Now, he was expounding Genesis at the time. And I still remember it vividly. And I learned when we were at Believer's Chapel through my brother that they had a tape ministry that was pretty impacting where they went straight through books of the Bible. And I had studied Romans in school, but one of the things that I really wanted to do was get a better grasp on it. So I decided that I would go ahead and get the tape ministry of Dr. S. Lewis Johnson and go through that book of Romans. I mean, it had a powerful effect on me. In fact, I wanted to have Dr. Johnson here to expound some things, but in 2004, the Lord took him home to be with him, so we never had the opportunity to have him here. But that book really changed my life. And then, when I taught at the Grand Rapids School of the Bible and Music in the mid-80s, I was assigned to teach two books, one of them Romans, one of them Revelation. 
And I saw some amazing things happen with both books, but there's one story I'll never forget from the book of Romans. The particular class that I was giving a lecture to was on Romans chapter 8. It was in the library, which had been turned into a big classroom for this particular book study. When the lecture was over, the class cleared out. There's a girl sitting at her desk weeping. So I walked over to her and I asked her, well, what's wrong? Is there anything we can help you with? She said, I've been in churches all my life. I've never seen or heard anything like this. She said, I've never seen or heard anything like what's been brought out here about the grace of God. And she said, I've sat here this hour, this 50-minute lecture, and realized I've been taught wrong all my life, and I'm overwhelmed with the grace of God. And then probably one of the most dramatic stories, and it shows up in the book, if you've read the book, occurred in Pocatello, Idaho. I get a knock at my door one day, and there is a lovely, lovely black woman standing at my door who's suicidal. And uh, she says, you're my last stop. I said, or what? She said, or I'm going to kill myself. I said, well, come on in, let's talk about it. I said, what seems to be your problem? She said, oh, I've done some things. She'd been involved in a life that hadn't been good. I mean, she was involved in immoral things, and she'd had an abortion. She'd done some drugs, and she had done certain things. And I took her to Romans 4-5. In fact, I handed her a copy of the Bible, and then I took her there, and I said, read this. It says that your justification has nothing to do with your works. It's by faith alone in Jesus Christ. If you believe on him... Apart from any works, you'll be saved. The tears streamed down her face, and she believed on the Lord and was saved from one verse of Romans. When we were getting ready to move here, there's another knock at my door. And I opened the door. I don't recognize the lady. She said, are you Pastor Thompson? I said, yes. She said, well, you don't know me, but you knew my sister. My sister came here. And she was at a real low point in time. She moved to California. She said, I want you to know that she spent her days, lived out for the Lord, actively involved in a church, serving the Lord, and God has seen fit to take her home. She grabbed my hand and said, thank you. Thank you for sharing the truth with her. Romans did that. Romans did that. So when I stand here and tell you that This book of Romans has impacted lives like no other book. I'm not exaggerating. John Chrysostom, the early church father and golden mouth orator of 8400, he said he had Romans read to him, or it was said of him, that he had Romans read to him twice a week before he died. And Frederick Godet, who was a Swiss Protestant theologian, said every great revival that the church has ever had has been caused by understanding and proclaiming the truths that are found in the book of Romans. Romans is a dynamic book. It's a world-impacting book. It's a church-changing book. It's a life-transforming changing book. And in the next weeks, we'd like to uh, take you on a journey through all 16 chapters. Now, I want to begin by asking and answering four questions. We've already covered why we're going to study it. So that's been covered. But Who wrote the book? Well, the overwhelming 
external and internal evidence clearly supports the fact Romans is written by Paul. Look at verse 1 of the first chapter. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called an apostle. So here's a guy named Paul who's a bondservant and an apostle that clearly says it was by Paul. Now, he had a secretary or an amanuensis. If you flip over to chapter 16 for just a minute, you'll get that guy's name. His name was Tertius. Tertius was the one who was apparently alongside Paul. Verse 22 of Romans 16 says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. So obviously, Paul is writing this, but he's using a guy named Tertius to record what he's dictating to him or what he's explaining to him. But Paul's the guy who's the author. And we just give you six evidences for this. Number one, the author of Romans clearly identifies himself as Paul. We said that. We showed you that. Number two, the author of Romans was from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul identifies himself from the tribe of Benjamin in Romans chapter 11, and he mentions that in Philippians as well. Evidence number three, the author of Romans had a close relationship with Priscilla and Aquila, which was certainly true of the Apostle Paul. He hooked up with them in Acts chapter 18. He developed a bond with them. And then now he mentions them in Romans 16. And then fourthly, the author of Romans was taking a major offering to Jerusalem from the churches of Macedonia and Achaia, which was a major project of Paul. I mean, Paul wanted to go to these churches who had developed and had been established, and he wanted to see to it that the poor Jewish people of Jerusalem, especially the believers of that area that were being persecuted, would receive this offering that he was taking. So he collected it. He took it to them. In fact, he was particular who he'd even allow to travel with him. When he did something like that, he allowed certain men to go with him and others he didn't. And the fifth evidence is the unanimous position of all early church writers says it was written by Paul. Irenaeus the Bishop of Lyons, Clement of Alexandria, Egypt, Tertullian, the African theologian, Origen, the Alexandria, Egypt theologian, Eusebius, the father of church history, they all say that Paul's the one who wrote the book of Romans. The sixth evidence is only two liberals in history have ever denied it. Evanson, an English author of the 1700s, and then this Bruno Barr, a German writer of the 1800s. And in fact, I got interested, what was Barr's beef? What was his beef? Why would he, in face of overwhelming evidence, claim that Paul didn't write the book? So I tried tracking that thing down. What I concluded is, he didn't have a problem with the first 14 chapters. It's the last two chapters, 15 and 16, and specifically chapter 16, where Paul names all these people, and he goes, how could a guy who's never been to that city know that many people that are in Rome? Well, one of the arguments that Evanson used was that Acts doesn't mention Paul wrote the book. Well, Acts doesn't mention Paul wrote any book. So that's no argument. Paul knew all the people that he mentions in the 16th chapter because he had touched base with them throughout all of his travels. I mean, Paul ran into these people all over the world. Eusebius said he had so many people against him, he never forgot anybody who supported him. And as far as writing to a city he hadn't visited, he wrote Colossians to a church he'd never been to. Never been to that spot. In fact, he tells the Colossians, when you read this letter, read it to the Laodiceans, he'd never been there either. So just by virtue of the fact he'd never been to Rome and you have all these people proves nothing. The fact is, Romans was written by Paul. 
And that to me, ladies and gentlemen, the fact that Romans was written by Paul is an amazing statement for the sovereign grace of a sovereign God. Because let's just remember who this guy Paul is. We're talking here about Saul of Tarsus at one time, who had been a man who was given over to Old Testament law and legalism. At one time, the Apostle Paul truly believed that the only way you could be right with God was be involved in the Judaistic traditions of men and religion and then keep the Old Testament law. That's what he believed. In fact, he's tracking down Christians trying to kill them if they didn't believe that. Yet he writes Romans years later that says no one can be right with God except through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. He drives home in this very book of Romans. No one can be right with God by trying to keep the Old Testament law. He says in Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He drives home in this book, no one can be right with God by their works. Paul writes in Romans 11.6, but if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So you look at this guy who at one time had been zealous in his Old Testament religion, zealous of religious works and traditions of men, he came to understand the grace of God, and Paul is the one who writes Romans. It is an amazing display of the sovereign grace of God. Now, the second question is, when did Paul write Romans? Well, Paul wanted to go to Rome. There's no question about that. I mean... He said in Acts chapter 19 and verse 21, I must also see Rome. There was a driving force in Paul's life. He wanted to go to Rome. I mean, it was always in the back of his mind. I need to get to Rome to present the gospel. But we can make five observations about this book. First of all, he wrote Romans before his first visit there. If you're open to chapter 1, notice verse 10, always in my prayers making a request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Obviously, he hadn't been able to get to Rome when he wrote the book. Twice, Paul mentions, I want to go to Rome. And he obviously wrote this book before he got to Rome. Now, he got to Rome somewhere around the year 80, 60, or 62, so we know he wrote the book before that. Secondly, he wrote Romans prior to taking that financial gift to Jerusalem. Flip over to chapter 15 if you have your Bibles open to Romans for just a moment. Chapter 15, and you'll notice verse 26 of chapter 15, which says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they're indebted to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them in their material things. So we know at this point he hadn't taken this financial gift to Jerusalem, so that puts the date before eighty fifty-seven and 59. The third observation is he wrote Romans prior to his arrest in Jerusalem. He isn't in Jerusalem yet. He hasn't been arrested yet. In fact, he had no knowledge he was going to be arrested because in Romans chapter 15 and verse 28, he said, I anticipate going to Rome and I'm going to go to Spain. He names that place. But then he says, first of all, I'm going to Jerusalem. He mentions that in the 15th chapter. So that puts us prior to AD 59. And then Paul wrote Romans near the end of his third missionary journey before his first Roman imprisonment. He obviously isn't locked up in jail when he writes this book. He doesn't mention it. Paul had three different 
missionary journeys. There's 80, 47 to 48 is the first one that's found in Acts chapters 13 and 14. That's the journey where he starts out in Antioch, which is Syria, and then he goes to the island of Cyprus, and then he just basically does a loop around Turkey, comes back to Antioch. Then missionary journey number two is found in Acts 16, 25 to 2038, and he takes off from Antioch. He goes to Lyconia, which is Turkey. He goes to Phrygia, which is Turkey, and Galatian region, which is Turkey, and Asia, which is Turkey. But then he gets that call from Macedonia. He goes to Greece, goes into Europe. And so in the second missionary journey, he goes to Macedonia, Greece, then Achaia, then back to Antioch. And then he goes on this third missionary journey in AD 56 to 58. He leaves Antioch, he goes to Phrygia and Galatia and Asia and Macedonia and Asia, then finally to Jerusalem. So he's written this letter sometime before he gets to Jerusalem at the end of that third missionary journey, which puts us at AD 57 or 58. And we also know that he wrote this before the Feast of Pentecost in May or June in Acts 2016, when he met with the Ephesian elders, he said, I want to be in Jerusalem for that feast day, that festival day. And so he didn't stop in Ephesus or go to Ephesus on his way. He had those elders come and meet him in Miletus. So from this biblical historical data, we are led to conclude that Paul wrote Romans in the early spring of AD 57 or 58. During his third missionary journey, that's where he pens this tremendous gospel of God. He had about a three-month gap of time there when he could have really worked on penning this particular gospel. Now that brings us to the third question, where was Paul when he wrote the book? Well, I want you to go over to Romans 16 for just a second, and I'll show you a couple of things. First of all, he writes this book somewhere near the home of Phoebe. Notice what we read in chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Cancria. So he's somewhere near the home of Phoebe, who had been a real help to Paul. Phoebe lived in Cancria, and Cancria is the eastern harbor of Corinth. And many think that Paul is using Tertius to help write the letter because his eyesight is so bad at this point that he can't see to write it. So he's basically developing the book. Tertius is writing, and many have suspected that Phoebe actually was the one who carried the book to Rome. The second fact that we see from Romans 16 is he's writing from the home of Gaius. Notice in verse 23, Gaius hosts to me. See that? So he's staying in the home of Gaius, that's the one who's housing him, and Gaius, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, lived in Corinth. And we also know that Paul spent three months in Greece and Corinth, and Corinth is in Greece, and there are a couple of manuscripts that say Paul wrote Romans in that three-month span of time when he was in Corinth. So our conclusion is, While he's spending three months in Corinth, near the end of his third missionary journey, A.D. 57 or 58, he wrote this book of Romans. Now, here's the amazing thing about this. Corinth was a messed up church. Corinth was a messed up city. If you read 1 Corinthians, all it is is a letter that handles one problem after another problem. It was a godless city, and the Corinthian church was a carnal church. Paul called it that. He said, I can't even teach you the deeper things of God because you're so fleshly and you're so carnal. So you would logically think 
you would logically think, now the message you'd want to communicate about the gospel would be one that would emphasize the responsibility and works of man. You're in a loose city here with a lot of wild stuff happening here in this city of Corinth. And you got this church here and the members are all fuzzy in their life. And you would think the thing you need to drive home is present the gospel like a lordship salvation. Tell them that it won't be enough just to believe in Jesus Christ. Add to it. You got to believe in the Lord, but boy, I'll tell you what, you better be following everything he says or it isn't going to count. You better purpose to really be disciplined and be a disciple if you're really going to believe or you're not going to make it. I mean, that would be the logical thing you would expect him to do. That is not what Paul does. He pens this book in Corinth and he stresses the pure grace of God. Furthermore, when he gets the letter written, he sends it to one of the most godless cities in the world. So Paul is writing a letter from a godless city in Greece. He's going to send this letter to the most godless city in Italy. And in this letter, he's going to stress pure grace, no works. The grace gospel has nothing to do with man's works. That's the doctrine that Paul will develop in Romans. The grace gospel has nothing to do with man's promises or his commitments or his obedience. The gospel Paul presents in Romans is justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, no matter how sinful the person, no matter how sinful the city, no matter how carnal the believer might be, he didn't change his message just because he hoped it would change them. Which brings us to the fourth question, why did Paul write Romans? Well, there are some personal reasons why Paul wrote Romans. First of all, he did want to build a good rapport to the Roman church before he visited it. I mean, he'd never been to this church. And certainly, by sending them this letter, it would show that that church was important to him. Secondly, he wanted to gain prayer support from the Roman church. He'll say that. He'll say, please pray for me. Please pray for my ministry so that God may use it and my ministry would be able to come there. And thirdly, Paul wanted to give an accurate perspective of the Jew-Gentile program. You see, the church could get real goofy when it comes to understanding God's program with Israel. In fact, Paul warns the church, don't you ever dare think for a second that you've replaced Israel. He'll develop that in Romans, which I just don't get how churches today have come up with this replacement theology. We've replaced Israel. I'm thinking, have you ever gone through Romans? Have you ever gone straight through this book of Romans? I mean, Romans is pretty clear. You better not fall into that trap. God judges people that think like that. We certainly know from verse 1 that Romans is going to reveal the gospel of God because Paul says that. I'm going to set forth the gospel of God. We know from Romans 1.7 that Romans is not written to lost people. In fact, Romans 1.7 says that he addresses this to all the beloved of God who are called saints. So he's writing this to people who are already saints. In Romans 1.8, their faith in Christ was the talk of the world. He says, I thank my God through Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So people were talking about the fact that there were believers there in Rome. But what Paul seemed to think was so significant is you need to understand your faith. It isn't just enough to say you believe in Jesus. That's important. That is the critical point. You believe in Jesus, but you need to understand that. 
So based on this, we would conclude that the gospel of Romans was written for doctrinal purposes, for people who are already believers. The epistle to the Romans was not written to evangelize the lost, although we've given you illustrations today of how the book of Romans does evangelize the lost, but the book of Romans primarily is given to educate the saved. Paul wanted the believers to be well-grounded in the gospel. He wanted them to have an accurate understanding of the true doctrine of God's grace. He wanted them to be accurately understanding the gospel of grace because there were a lot of false religions and a lot of false teachers and they're out there telling you, follow our work system, follow our codes, follow our creeds, follow our traditions, follow our catechism. And they all add stuff to what salvation is supposed to be. And Paul said, no, 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 no. You do not get right with God by your religious law keeping or by the traditions of men. You get it by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is just like in our day. Just like in our day. You have all these churches. They've all got their roads to being right with God. And some of them add stuff to faith in Christ. And some of them come up with their own religious traditions, their own catechisms, their own teachings. And Paul comes along and says, no, I'll give you Romans. that will straighten you out. Romans was written by Paul to beloved believers so that they would carefully understand this wonderful gospel of the grace of God. And Paul said, I got this gospel directly from Jesus Christ. I want you to understand this grace gospel. God wants you to understand this grace gospel. And I'm taking this message to the entire Gentile world. And I promise you this, if you go on a journey with us, if you go on a journey through this book with us, you will clearly see you can't be justified by your works. Your works will never be good enough for God. You can't be justified by trying to keep the Old Testament law because you'll never keep it. You'll never be able to keep it at all. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. The righteousness that any sinner needs to be right with God and go to heaven is not our righteousness. It's God's. And God will only give that righteousness to one who believes in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you will believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Apart from your works, your promises, apart from your attempts to keep Old Testament law, you will be saved and justified if you believe on Jesus Christ. That's the gospel of God that Paul will develop in Romans. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, right now, why not settle it right where you sit? Just acknowledge the truth that you're a sinner and invite the Lord Jesus Christ into your life to be your Savior. Our Father, we thank you so much for this tremendous book of Romans. We anticipate the journey, Lord. We know what's in here, but... It's stabilizing no matter how many times you've been through it. It's a book that is life-transforming, and we pray that you would do that with this book as we handle it in the next weeks. We pray that you bless this communion service, Lord. This communion service really zeroes in on the themes of Romans. One person, what he does, imputed to us, gives us an everlasting status of righteousness. Thank you for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.